Jason Ochart is the guest in this episode. Jason has an extensive background working in baseball, specifically trying to help hitters increase their swing speed. He works for Driveline, a baseball performance training organization, taking the baseball world by storm. He was also recently hired by the Boston Red Sox to be their director of hitting and program design. I was very curious to pick Jason's brain about the assessment and training of baseball hitters trying to increase their swing speed and see if there was things that we could transfer to golf. Jason brought a wealth of information and I hope you enjoy learning from him as much as I did. Just before we get started, a reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and all standards are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness and health. There are programs to suit everyone and there is an abundance of material to suit people working out at home or in the gym. Visit fitforgolf.blog forward slash app to find out more. You can get 20% off a 12-month subscription with the code FFGPOD. Now to the episode with Jason Ochart. Jason Ochart, thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, really looking forward to talking and uh, you know, I've been looking forward to this ever since you brought it to my mind. So thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Jason, can you please provide us with your background and get us up to speed on what you currently do in the baseball world? Yeah, so I had a pretty unconventional journey into professional baseball as an instructor. So I um, I played baseball, grew up in California, um, played baseball with the dreams of going to the big leagues. Uh, wasn't good enough, but played through college. And um, I studied kinesiology, sports science, and kind of as I was wrapping up my degree, you know, I started taking classes like um, anatomy, exercise physiology, motor learning, et cetera. And I started probably more importantly to think scientifically about sport, about coaching, about movement. And uh, it really challenged a lot of things that I did myself as a player, right? I started to realize like, okay, may- maybe I'm not doing this the right way. And uh, it, ca- it kind of hit me right you know, between the eyes. And it, it inspired me to really sort of reevaluate what I was doing and, and also, you know, go into coaching. Um, so my first kind of client, I guess, was my younger brother. And, uh, you know, that's a different story. But, but basically, I ruined his swing <laughs> before I learned a lot of these things. Um, the, the long story short is that he, he was a multi-sport athlete. Uh, he's a good golfer now, but uh, he was a multi-sport athlete in high school. So he played football, track and baseball. And in baseball season, he kind of just grab his glove, run over to the field and play. And he was the best player on the team. Well, uh, after he finished high school, he decided to go play college. So we spent the whole summer working together. I was his private coach. And by the time I was done with him, he couldn't hit the ball out of the infield, the poor guy, uh, and didn't make the team. He got cut. So um, anyway, after that, I started learning these things. And and, and it starts to really uh, hit me that like, oh, my, oh, my Lord, I, I ruined my brother. <laughs> I, uh, I, I need to, I need to do some things better. And, um, and I did. So I, so I went into coaching. Uh, first things first, I got with my brother. I kind of fixed his swing, uncoached him from all the things that I, that I taught him. Um, and he ended up making the team. And, and that sort of was like my first taste of, of coaching. And then um, went into college coaching with my brother, actually. He, he convinced the coach to hire me as an assistant coach. Um, did that for three years. 
And as I was doing that, that was at a college called Menlo College, the small business school in Northern California. And um, as I was doing that, I started to kind of open source my work with social media. And I did that sort of unintentionally. Like I started posting things on Twitter, mostly for the players to see, you know, I had like 11 followers or whatever. So I, I didn't really care. I was just kind of putting um, our drills up there. It's like some game video, some competitions and stuff that we were doing in our cages. And um, it started to catch some attention, some national attention. And um, we were also playing really well. So we were breaking all kinds of records, home runs, batting average, doubles, et cetera. And um, it caught the attention of a guy named Kyle Bodie. So Kyle was the uh, or is the founder of Driveline Baseball, and that that's uh, this was about 2015. He reached out to me on social media. and said, "Hey, I'm, I've been following along. I really like what you're doing. You kind of take a data driven approach to what you're doing, and and some support science principles." Interviewed me for the job, and at the time they they had just done pitching. They were a new company. I think they had seven or eight employees, and um, they were interested in in expanding to hitting as well. So he interviewed me, uh, offered me the job, and I'm not sure how much you know about college baseball uh, <laughs> coaching salaries, but uh, I made $10,000 total in three years there. So I, I, I took the job with Driveline, as you can imagine. And um, I did that. So built, built that program from scratch. Uh, eventually got some attention from professional baseball organizations, did a couple consulting gigs. And then in 2019, I took a job with the Phillies as their minor league hitting coordinator. So that title basically runs all of the minor league hitting development for the organization. Um, at the time, we had nine teams. They now have eight. But, um, you know, it's over 100 hitters, you know, n n nine hitting coaches, like I mentioned, nine teams. Um, and you basically run all the training of the of both the players and the, and the coaches for that. Uh, did that for four years. Just got a new job with the Boston Red Sox doing a, a basically the same title a, a little bit of a better title but um but yeah that's basically my my background and how I got to where I am today and I'm still with driveline as owner of the company and, and a bit of a consultant but uh but yeah that's that's been my path it's been kind of fun and unique but uh but yeah I love it yeah that's fascinating really really interesting insight um really nice trust from your brother allowing you uh, have a second chance <laughs> yeah. and then and then uh, bringing you into the college setup as well that was a yeah nice nice comeback story there um like you mentioned that back in 2015 Kyle Bodie the founder of driveline got in touch like I don't follow baseball that closely I'm interested in it sort of because of the transfer between like golf performance and baseball performance in terms of physical training and and athletic qualities but even I know how big a juggernaut driveline is in the baseball world now. Can you let people who maybe aren't familiar, I guess definitely people who are outside the US maybe, know exactly what driveline is and just how big it's gotten? Yeah, so it's a company in uh, the Seattle, Washington area. And um, we're a data-driven baseball player development organization, basically. So guys come in, athletes, and, and they train to get better at baseball. And our mantra is, is to be data-driven, to be scientific in what we do. And, um, you know, Kyle, basically I can tell the story of Kyle. I think, I think it's relevant to, to the, to the answer here. I mean, yeah. he, um, is an incredibly smart man. He worked at Microsoft, um, 
in the like with computer science. It's just a, cra- a crazy high IQ dude, and was always interested in baseball. And um, started kind of training pitchers um, using like some sports science, some some uh, strength and conditioning principles, and doing some things that are different. You know, using data, um, using technology, uh, u- using overload, underload implements, things like that. And, and players were getting better, right? And it started with just, you know, three or four guys in this garage. And Kyle was, was also a really good writer. So he was sharing this stuff online on his blog and, and on uh, on social media. And it kind of started to gain traction. And, you know, three players became five. It became, became 10. And then he got a building um, and, and started, you know, doing it more at scale and full time. And it really kind of took the baseball industry by storm. And um, it, it it sort of intersected perfectly with, how the game was changing itself and the game of baseball, similar to golf, uh, a little behind it, but started to see an influx of technology um, and, and analytics in that, in the game itself. And not only in the observation of, of performance, but in, um, in training, right. And in player development. So, so for the first time they had a lot of, a lot of uh, technology that could measure things like uh, on a pitch, the spin of the pitch, the the movement of the pitch, release points, and and, and a lot of more granular data than than had uh, ever existed in the sport. And Kyle was really on the forefront of it, experimenting with it, learning what was good, what was bad, how to deploy it with players, how, how to make people better with it. Um, and it just kind of caught fire, and, I, and it became what it is today, which which is a huge company that. Uh, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of athletes have done our programs. A lot of major league players do. A lot of major league teams use our stuff, um, and, and it's uh, it's really on the cutting edge of data driven player development in baseball. Did uh, Kyle start doing that without any formal education in exercise science or coaching or any big baseball background? Yeah, he did. Um, he had never coached before other than I think some, some little league coaching that he did at one point, just to kind of like <laughs> work on his coaching chops. Um, he played a little bit, I think. Uh, he, yeah. But, but he, he, you know, to famously doesn't have a college degree. He might've just got one recently if I'm not mistaken, but, uh, but yeah, he was a total outsider. Um, and yeah, j- just kind of came out of nowhere and, and really, really changed the game. Wow, that's amazing. And quickly, just to sort of wrap up on the origins of Driveline and where it is now, do you have an idea of like how many employees Driveline has now or how many facilities it has or, you know, maybe how many athletes it sees a year sort of thing? Yeah, we have two facilities now. Just opened a new one in in, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Employees were up over 100 now. And like I said, when I got hired in 2016, I, I think I was like the eighth or ninth employee, if I'm not mistaken. So it's really accelerated quickly. Um, total athletes, I don't have the number off the top of my head. It's a lot. We do a lot of online training as well. We have a lot of athletes that come through the gym um, and, and then a lot that that go on to online, um, online training. We have, um, let's see, um, two main seasons. Basically, we have the professional offseason, which is right now, and then we have the college summer. So baseball in the States, they, they play during the – you know, they have practice in the fall, they play in the spring, and then the summers are off. So a lot of college and high school players will come in the summer. So those are kind of our two main seasons. And we'll have, you know, several hundred athletes come through in each of those seasons. 
Excellent. So the main reason that I was interested to talk to you was to try and see if we could, or if I could learn from you and driveline and how you approach improving bat speed with baseball players. Yeah. Um, anybody listening to this knows that kind of my big interest slash obsession is club head speed in golf. Uh, and that's what a lot of the listeners are interested in as well. So how important is, or maybe a better way of saying it is, uh, how big an element of being a successful baseball hitter is bat speed? And then when a player is in search of more bat speed, what is the process of assessment and training that driveline goes through? Yeah, great question. Um, bat speed is incredibly important to, to being a successful batter. Um, that's not common knowledge in the industry. I think it's changed a lot recently, but, uh, but you'd be surprised how many people don't know that despite there being pretty clear and obvious, um, you know, proof that that matters, uh, it matters for a number of reasons. I mean, for one, the ability to hit the ball at high speeds correlates directly to, to success and, and batted ball quality, right? So the, the ability to hit a ball and not get caught by a defender or hit a ball and have it go over the fence. The faster it's hit, the, the more successful it is. That's a, it's a linear uh, relationship. And then secondarily, pitchers throw incredibly hard, right? I think the average fastball is, continues to climb, and I think it's now up over 94 miles an hour. And, and you know, to hit something that fast, you, you have to move fast as well. So um, you can see it um, in the data as well. When you look at average swing speed by level, right, from amateur to, to college to Division One college to minor league, as you move up the minor levels of the minor leagues and the big leagues, it, it's pretty clear that, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see higher bat speeds at each level. Um, how to train it, you know, that, and, and how to assess it, that, that's the, you know, that's our sweet spot. That's what we do really well and what we've done for a while. And I've kind of got a heads up on the, on the industry, I think. First and foremost is, um, you, you, you know, I guess I can talk about how we assess it. So there's a couple of different ways we can look at it with sensors. So I'm not sure how how much those are used in golf, but there's sensors that go on the bat. It's a uh, it's usually like an accelerometer and a, and a gyroscope, and it it'll tell you the speed of each swing. Um, th those are pretty common in in baseball. So that's one tool we'll use. We look at batted ball data as well with launch monitor launch monitors. So uh, before sensors, that was sort of the way to do it, was looking at how hard you hit the, the ball, in particular, how hard are your hardest hit balls, right? We can kind of reverse engineer the bat speed off of that. And then we'll use motion capture equipment as well. So there's a marker and markerless motion capture um, that we use, a driveline that the industry uses. Those are three different ways to kind of assess um, a, a player's swing speed. Um, so as far as... The next step, I mean, I mean, first and foremost, like we have to try and figure out, okay, if player has slow swing swing speed, why, right? So there's there's kind of different buckets that we can kind of go into. Like first and foremost, is it physical, right? Are you are you just not strong enough to swing fast? Um, is it more neurological, right? Is it kind of like a central nervous system thing where you're not moving quickly, you're not trained to move at high speeds? Or is it um, technique, right? And then I guess the fourth one would be sort sort of you as a user error, so to speak. Is it you not actually strategy-wise swinging at, at high speeds or attempting to swing at high speeds, which is which is more common than you'd think simply because um, 
baseball is a sport that just incentivizes precision so much, right? For a number of reasons. I mean, swing and missing is embarrassing and it's, it, you know, striking out sucks. And then also it hurts. Like if you don't hit the sweet spot of a bat, it gives you, it hurts a lot. Um, mm. if you can imagine like blading a, a four iron in the first thing in a cold morning, imagine that times a hundred, that's what it feels like to, to, you know, hit a 95 mile hour fastball off the handle of your bat. So, uh, a lot of players, as they come up, they, they kind of, because of their intention, they, their mechanics become optimized for precision and, and not speed, especially at the youth level where you have like really big strikes, uh, strike zones and a lot of coaching that incentivizes just putting balls in play and, and uh, making contact. So, um, so yeah, that's the first place to start. Okay. Why are you swinging slow? And then we can kind of look into those areas and, and, and kind of work off of that. Yeah. Brilliant. So when you've gone through the assessment process, which sounds similar to what a lot of the maybe like top level, like golf academies or institutions would be doing with launch monitors and 3d biomechanical assessments. Once you've, I said, I suppose if we move past technique a little bit, because that might be slightly alien to me and listeners in terms of what's really important to baseball technique and swing speed. I'm sure there's similarities to the golf swing and we might get back to it. But if you say maybe roulette, rule out technique or techniques, not their lowest hanging fruit. And we go more into like the athletic, the athletic qualities or physical measurement side of things. What are some things you see that tend to correlate with high bat speeds or if someone improves at certain things, you know there's a good chance their bat speed will go up. I appreciate that might be individual based on the athlete profile from the testing, but info you have there would be really interesting. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I, I, it's funny you mentioned the technique thing. I mean, b- baseball coaches and players are obsessed with technique. And as someone that's measured the biomechanics of of hundreds of professional hitters, I can tell you there there is no one mechanical sort of profile that that leads to speed there's a a lot of different ways to get it done um it's it's unique to the individual how they move their 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 structure of their body their their mobility etc um and it seems to be the the focus everyone wants to talk about technique and they're obsessed about mechanic mechanics and and joint angles and things like that but that that's not usually where guys are falling short um so as far as what actually leads to, to speed i mean some of these answers are boring, you know, lean body mass and, and strength, just general strength, peak power, um, rate of force development, uh, height and weight correlate really strongly to speed. Obviously, I mean, if I'm 5'10", if someone that's 6'5", swings at the same exact rotational speed, you know, just because their levers are longer, they're, they're going to generate a much higher uh, bat speed at, at the same rotational speed. So, so being bigger helps a lot, and that's why most baseball players are, are – pretty big um what else ground force during the swing that that's one we've seen that correlates pretty strongly obviously it's uh related to height but uh we have force plates in our in our batting cages and that's been kind of interesting this is something relatively new to me but we've seen that these guys put a lot of force into the ground when they hit in particular in their lead leg um it's actually an anecdote. Do you use dual force plates? Is is it a force plate under each foot? It's under each foot. Yeah. yeah. Under each foot. We have them in our pitching mounds as well. And, uh, you know, I, I always use this example for, for players that aren't strong enough. I mean, 
when we look at our, our best MLB hitters, a lot of times they'll have, you know, over two, sometimes up to three times their body weight in force going down through their left leg or their front leg during the swing, right? So you're thinking about a guy who's rotating at insane speeds unilaterally while pushing down through uh, the lead leg. And I mean, the strength requirement to, to do that and not, you know, shred your, your hip and your knee and your ankle, it's incredibly high. So I, I think so many of our, our young guys is potentially like, like we talked earlier, neurologically, they could probably solve that problem and move fast, but they just do not possess the strength to do that. So, so that's uh, an interesting area as well, looking kind of at ground, ground force in the swing. And our guys that have increased bat speed in our gym tend to increase their, their ground force as well. Okay. Um, in terms of, so you mentioned that lean body mass, which is basically muscle mass. That's what we can, um, that's what we can modify to make our lean body mass go up. It will include like bone and things like that as well, but that's not going to change a whole lot. Um, in terms of strength being a big, um, contributor, do you know what exercises you guys measure? Like, is there certain ones that people think, because obviously strength is quite specific to different movement patterns. Yeah. So is there exercises that driveline has said, okay, these are the exercises we want to know strength in because obviously assessing strength in something like a, you know, squat type movement yeah. is very different to assessing strength in something like a, you know, rotational movement with a cable pulley or something like that. Yeah. yeah so uh, the high performance team, has a series of, of tests that they do in their assessment. And I'm by no means an expert on this, but I, I can speak as best I can. Uh, they use force decks and they have five tests. So the, the first one is the isometric mid thigh pool. Um, then they'll look at like peak power. It's, it's a test of, of lower body maximal strength. Um, so basically there's a bar kind of a, a, at mid thigh and you grab it and you, and you pull up as hard as you can yeah. and, and and you'll kind of get like a force development curve and, and you get some information there. They'll look at a seal row, which is similar, but it's, it's like, a, imagine you're on a bench press, but on your, you know, prone on your stomach and you're, you're pulling upwards like a, like a row almost. Um, hence the name seal row. Right. And, and then you have a counter. It's like a chest supported row for anyone who's used to that exercise in the gym, except it's fully flat rather than on an incline. Exactly. And then three three different uh, jump tests. So they'll do a counter movement jump, a squat jump, and a repeated hop test. And they'll look at those five tests. And um, because we have so much data of, of, of players in our gym, they're able to figure out a predicted range of, of – or a predicted speed, whether he's a pitcher or a hitter, a predicted velocity of their, their swing speed or their pitching speed. And um, – then we can look at the actual speed and see kind of how they compare. Um, and we'll use that sort of as, as a method to, to kind of disseminate if a, if a low swinger, low uh, swing speed is due to technique or if it's more um, physical, right? That's, that's really interesting. So you've five tests, three of them are different types of jumps and there's no rotational move and there's no upper body pressing move which is just really interesting to think of when like you know you you think of baseball as a rotational power movement and usually when someone does upper body testing they'd always have an upper body 
push, not all like a bench press or something like that. Yeah. Not always an upper body pull. So it'd be really interesting to hear more from the guys who who do more of that stuff, how they came up with those tests and maybe like why there's such a big um, focus on the jumping. Obviously, I'm thinking it must be related to the uh, athletic qualities that will influence ground force, but no rotational test and no upper body push is is a really interest is a really interesting to me. Yeah, no, it really is, and I, I don't have the answers as to, to why they don't do those things. I, I know in the past we've done some Kaiser chops, and I, I think the data just got really noisy because it's so reliant on technique, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's largely why they ended up with these five, and and they they found these correlate pretty strongly to to speed from a pitcher or a hitter. So. No, that's great. Do you know, have Driveline experimented with Proteus at all? Do you know what that machine is? No, I don't. Okay. Um, it's a question for someone else, but basically Proteus is a new, it's it's gotten reasonably popular in the baseball and kind of rotational power training world. It's essentially, uh, it looks like a, almost like a cable stack. It's basically just one solid unit. Yeah that has an arm that comes out from it that you can hold and it can move in any dimension you want. And the resistance is the same in all directions. So different to a cable machine or a freeway where gravity or momentum might help, this is uh, the same amount of resistance in any range of motion you move it. Uh, And it's because of that, it's pretty easy to do tests in different planes. So it's gotten quite popular in in some in some baseball circles and they have a really nice software on it too where they can give you like a report on different movements and body parts relative to the testing they've done but yeah it's it's still reasonably new it was something that i was i was interested if you guys had used yeah not to my knowledge um i i can find out and maybe send you a message but i haven't personally heard about that but that's super interesting um so you mentioned the strength testing that you guys do. When I've been following Driveline, I've seen a lot of uh, pitching practice or speed training with balls that are heavier and lighter than a regular baseball. And you mentioned that that's something that maybe you've been doing with batting too, yep. heavier and lighter bats, which is very prominent in the golf training world, primarily with speed sticks and the stack system and rip stick. Um, can you talk a little bit of how those are implemented and maybe how you how you see them work with your baseball athletes? Yeah, yeah, they're a staple in our program. Um, and typically, we'll do twenty percent overload and twenty percent underload. And what we do is during those bat speed training days, our our guys are are swinging at high intent with the intention of moving the bat fast, right? And a, bi- a big part of that is giving them feedback on their swing speed, right? Um, but the way the program works is they'll start with the heavy bat. They'll go through, um, you know, the, the programs vary by player, but typically, you know, four to eight swings with the heavy bat. Um, the idea being it's a lot like weightlifting of the swing. It's kind of a, it's an overload. It's a little heavier, it um, can help the hitter. I mean, both physically and like psychologically knowing they're swinging something heavier to move a little better, um, to tighten up some of their movements, some of their, their inefficiencies. And then we'll shift to the underload. And the goal there is really simple. It's just move that thing fast, 
right? Try and break through that limiter that your, your brain, your, your nervous system has put on you potentially, and just get your body swinging at speeds that it's not used to swinging at. And um, again, the key here is, is a commitment to the speed and a, a full-blown focus on moving fast. And part of that is no concern with things like technique, outcome, batted ball quality, smash factor, things like that, which is hard to do for players who their whole life have really like focused so much on making good contact. Um, but to really, you know, get the full benefit of the program, you have to commit to it and, and you have to just let it rip. Right. And I think a big part, a big way of doing that is just giving them feedback, real-time feedback on their swing speed and the coach just like ensuring they have blinders on, on that exact feedback and on that intention. And we don't care about the outcome. We're just trying to get you to move fast with these 12 swings. And that can help kind of unlock some stuff with guys. The 20% overload and underload, is that the actual percentage difference in weight, in weight. relative to the regular bat? Okay. Yeah. I, I thought you meant uh, percentage of time spent training in each. That seems like quite a lot relative to like some other systems. Is that kind of drivelines research based on what they found worked best, the, the 20% over and under? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sort of our, our research and uh, some other research has been done as well. Um, we have a heavier bats and lighter bats as well. Uh, if we have a really strong hitter, we, we might go with, with a 30, 40% overload. Um, but with, you know, it's kind of where the coaching art comes into it, right? Just kind of looking at mm -hmm. the movement quality to make sure it's not completely falling off a cliff with the heavy bat. Um, 20% is sort of the, the sweet spot that, that we have for our, our training equipment. Yeah, no, that's great. Do you use, um, like, a, let's say, a weight or load versus velocity profiling for the batters with the different weight bats? For example, do you see if a person has, let's say, if two, if two batters have a similar um, bat speed with a regular bat, do you want to see if maybe one of them is better with the heavier one and compared to the lighter one and the other one might be better with the lighter versus the heavier and then adjust how much light or overload versus underload the different athletes might need? Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. And it's a great question. It's something we've looked into and, and we don't have any, um, you know, large, large data on it, big data on it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Anecdotally, it's been really interesting to see how the, the players respond to the different stimulus. Some guys, for instance, like they they'll grab the lighter bat and they won't move any faster. Right. And in some extreme cases, we'll we'll give guys the 20% overload and they'll move faster, right? Or they'll add an ounce to their game bat. This happened the other day with the with the big leader we have in, in gym. He grabbed the bat that was heavier um, and his swing speed improved, right? So he was able to use that that extra weight to gain more speed. So um, it's certainly something we look into um, when we try to figure out, okay, what type of bat should this player be using in a game, first of all, right? Because a, a baseball bat can vary, and, and obviously it's, it's total weight, um, it's length, and then it's MOI or it's weight distribution, right? Certain players do better with a more end-loaded bat where the center of, of mass is kind of more towards the cap, towards the end, versus others are, are more handle-loaded. Um, so, so that's kind of an interesting thing to look into. Um, and then as far as the, the programming of 
how much underload versus how much overload a guy should do in training that that one we don't have it down to a science but we we kind of just look at how they respond to the training um and usually if a, if a guy like for instance doesn't do well with the underload we might give them more just to try and see what's going on um and, and try and get them to, to find that like unlock are you guys um so you you said one of the big things of driveline is how data driven you are and trying to make it super scientific are you guys tracking the speeds of every swing in these training sessions and reviewing the sessions to see kind of exactly how the player's performance is changing during training yeah so we we do track it um we track it more with the game bat. Like all the game bat swings will be measured with a bat sensor. Uh, we'll measure the batted ball data with the launch monitor. Um, and all that will automatically get, get tracked and, and uh, stored in our internal software called, called track actually um, for the bat speed training. We, we do measure it. I don't at the moment track it uh, and, and, and keep it like anywhere. Uh, it's something we looked into a while back, kind of looking at like like you mentioned, force velocity curves of, of speeds with different bats to kind of see if there was anything there. Um, we didn't find anything. Not saying there wasn't, but um, it, it's a yeah. project that I think we can look into in in the future. And we do have a lot of data on um, you know player swing speeds with different bats and uh, over time as well. And and my my initial theory was that the players that really had a large spread between their game bat and their underload bat speeds would respond to training better and ultimately with um, more strength and more training increase their game bat speed, right? So in a way it was like the underload can show us the ceiling of a player. Um, I don't think that turned out to be true <laughs> in the research we yeah. did, but uh, it's something to think about. And I was thinking about it from a baseball, like scouting standpoint, right? If we can look at a guy and, that's the big question is like, how is this player going to develop? He's 16 now, he's 17 now. What, what's he going to do when he's 23? And my like galaxy brain idea was what if we give him an underload and maybe that can tell us a little bit about how this player is going to respond to added strength and, and power potential. Um, that didn't, didn't amount to anything, but there could be something there if we, if we look a little more. No, that's interesting. It's something I think about a lot in terms of overload and underload speed training in golf and even sort of strength training versus speed training, whether it's underload, overload, or using a regular club and swinging as fast as you, as you can kind of my, my thinking on it. And it's taken from, you know, researchers that have done it in sprinting with uh, towing different weight sleds or being uh, assisted in your sprinting. So you're running faster or in jumping where you're jumping against yep. load or jumping with something helping you. So you're jumping higher than normal. And it's that, you might have some players who are, you know, you mentioned nervous system, very neurally efficient. They can create, they can get towards their maximum force very, very quickly. So an exceptionally high rate of force development, but their total force level may not be that high. They might not be super strong. Whereas you'll have other players uh, likely who have more of a heavy strength training background have gotten very strong in an absolute sense in terms of lifting heavy weights. But from doing all that and maybe neglecting any type of light fast training, they can't ramp up to that force very quickly at all. Yep. So they don't get to express it all when they're swinging. 
And sort of the thinking would be that, well, you get the strong, slightly slower guy to do way more light and fast training because he already has plenty of muscle mass and an absolute force to draw from. And then you do the opposite with the guy who has an extremely efficient nervous system and can ramp up his force very quickly, but he's just not ramping up to a very high force. Well, then you get them a bigger force potential with more strength training or maybe heavier swings would be enough to do it and sort of try and almost like target each of those guys or girls weaknesses uh, to increase their speed. It's, yeah, it's, it's hard to know because it's, you know, it's, it's theory in, in one sense and trying to draw from things that have been seen in, in maybe other sports, but yeah, oftentimes in the other sports and other movements, they're not quite as complex as a swinging motion in jumping or, or sprinting even maybe yeah. there's not quite as much options for, for creating force, you know? Totally. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And I know our, our, our high performance team, they, they kind of have three different phases of training they do. The first one they call accumulation, which is kind of more like a hypertrophy trade uh, phase, which is guys that usually when they come in, maybe they're not used to lifting. They'll do that. Um, strength is the second phase, which is, which is you know pretty simple, just like increasing their, their maximal strength. And, and then the third one is re- related to what you just mentioned, which is kind of power. So they're doing a lot of explosive movements, plyometric movements, throwing med balls a ton, um, doing chops and, and jumps and, and sprints and things like that. And those phases typically will be four to six weeks, but the length of the phase and then like the, the, the programming within the phase itself will depend on the player's profile and how they test out on those things before. So like those two examples you had would, would have different programs um, for obvious reasons, but that's kind of how we think about it at driveline. No, that's great. In terms of if we, if we move into like, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that sort of my followers and me would have a reasonable understanding of what the strength or they say gym sessions might look like. I'm sure there's some things we aren't thinking of, but a lot of athletic performance driven programs have, have very similar elements in their programs. They've dynamic mobility to warm up. They have some, uh, more power-based work with things like jumping, med ball throws, maybe some swinging. They have some max strength type stuff with bigger compound lifts like squatting, hinging, pushing, pulling. And then they might have some more isolated stuff that's targeted maybe towards injury prevention. For you guys, I'm sure there's a lot of like rotator cuff stuff or yeah. maybe oblique and lat and groin things for, for your um, hitters. But if we move more to the site. And the other thing about that is that those types of programs, there's loads of research on them. If you go to Google Scholar and you look for strength training programs, or even if you go on Google, it's so easy to find pretty good quality strength and power programs. But when you're looking for material on how to put together a speed training program, like in terms of actually swinging golf clubs or I'm sure it's the same, like I haven't done it, but swinging baseball bats and and trying to get your speed up. There's very little information available on like volume of swings to put in a session, how to decide on that, uh, the frequency to do those sessions at. Do you do it once a week? Do you do it daily? Do you do it, you know, every other day? Um, do you have some information on with your guys who are trying to increase their bat speed? How often in a week are they swinging bats as fast as they can? 
and how many swings is typical to be in one of those sessions. Yeah. Yeah, no, good good points. Um, as I was hired and I had to build this thing out, I mean, I was kind of shooting blind, right? <laughs> as far as answering these questions, like how what's the program itself? How often do they hit? Um, rest time between swings, total number of swings, et cetera. Uh, what we do now is is somewhere between three and, and five days a week, guys will swing uh, at, at max intent in their bat speed training. Um, and it depends. So so basically, I'm going to go off, off track just a little bit here. But when a hitter comes into the drive line, we'll do an assessment on their on their hitting alone. And basically, we look at three different things. And we call them the big three. Right. So the first one's bat speed, which is what we're talking about today. The second is bat to ball skills. So this would, would be uh, like ball striking and golf or precision. The third yeah. is swing decisions, which is more a uh, strategy. Um, are you swinging at the right pitches? Are you taking at the right pitches? To, right? So there's pitch recognition and vision and, and, and game planning kind of goes into that. So um, the guys will go on a program based on where they're lacking in those three and what kind of their, their program allocation will be dictated by kind of how their, their big three profile shakes out. Uh, a large majority of our players, especially amateurs will go into a bat speed program. And the ones that are going full blown bat speed, that those are the guys that are doing the four or five days a week of, of high intent bat speed training. And um, a typical bat speed day will be uh, 40 to 50 swings. Lar- uh, you know, 20, 30 seconds between swings. They're um, they're typically going to be cued solely to move fast that like we talked about before, and I, I'm beating a dead horse, but I think it's that important. The training itself, like the pitch, will be really uh, slow and kind of right down the middle. Coach will be like underhanding it to them, um, and then as they progress to the season, we'll start to add more variability and more difficulty in the ac- actual pitch itself. So we'll start using a machine. A coach will throw overhand. Maybe, maybe we'll start mixing pitches and stuff like that. But we're doing like full blown bat speed training. It's it's very much blocked practice, and um, they're getting feedback on their swing speed. And a lot of times, what we're trying to do is actually get them to kind of break out of these like mechanical concepts they have in their head that are actually throttling their swing speed. Right. I say this all the time, but a lot of times we're uncoaching on athletic movement with our with our hitters. So. Posture is a good example. A lot of hitters think they need to stand really tall, right? Um, and the swing, like similar to golf, is it's in a lot of ways it's just a tilted rotation of the body, right? Um, so getting guys to to kind of get to these more advantageous positions and spots where they can rotate quickly and rotate fast um, is the goal. And our way of doing that is maybe a little different than most. We don't teach the technique itself. We we try to design our practice in such a way that allows the hitters to self-organize into those positions by, by giving them feedback on things that matter by giving minimal technical instruction, minimal uh, internal cueing and really focusing on the outcome we want, which is move bad fast. Right. And um, we'll do drills. Like I call them athletic drills. There's three of them that are part of a, a staple. And I think you could maybe even do these in, in golf might look silly at the range but so <laughs> that's okay uh walk through is one so the hit the hitter will stand behind and kind of just walk into their hitting motion and swing the second one is a step back so i've, I've seen versions of this on on golf twitter 
but like guys stand there yeah. kind of and long drivers. I've even seen some long drivers do this, like step back into their back leg and then swing from there. And then the third one is, is uh happy Gilmore, which I'm sure you've seen that movie. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, the concept being like, Hey, just be an athlete again. And I, I teach these, these guys, I've talked to the kids. I'm like, stop thinking about your hands and your elbow angles and how you're loading into your back hip and your weight distribution and all these things that like all this noise that hitters get from, from coaches. Um, and just go back to being an athlete and just do these drills, kind of move around, be fluid, be uh, be rhythmic, and just move the bat fast. And nine times out of ten, that's enough to to clean up the technique and get guys to start moving a lot quicker. Um, so yeah, I mean that's kind of my spiel. Like I, I think it's so important to uh, to keep the players focused on the thing that matters, which is moving fast. And anytime they start getting into technique and start thinking about things like that. Um, we, we got to shift our focus back to uh, what matters. And a lot of times that'll clean up the movement itself. That's great. Um, it sounds like the vast majority of the swings that players are making are with balls. Is that correct? Yes. Like do, do they do any swings in a week? All of their swings are are hitting a ball. Yes. Including the overload and underload. Um bats the 20 percent heavier and lighter yeah okay that's interesting that's that's something that i think about a lot in golf um it's probably harder to do in golf maybe i don't know but the overload and underload speed training tools generally don't involve hitting a ball and something that players sometimes struggle with is transitioning their swing their swing speed training from not hitting a ball to hitting a ball and trying to get a balance of basically doing enough practice where they're swinging as fast as they can with a ball there. Because I think the, basically the skill changes when it's trying to move something as fast as you can with no impact versus an impact and ball flight. I think there's big, big benefits to both, but it's a tricky balance. It's interesting that you do all of your speed training, I guess, intertwined with the skill of making good contact if possible yeah no it's a good question and something we've grappled with a little bit uh there are like speed trainers in baseball that are not intended to be used to hit things with um i've used them i I just didn't didn't pass the sniff test for me i didn't like how they were moving i i didn't think that the kinematics were were great and and also like I, i know a lot of hitters didn't like it like they felt like they I don't know. Like I, I think the sequencing got off when they're not hitting something, they kind of get a little sweepy and maybe just, just didn't feel like they could really get their swing off. Like there wasn't really a release of the, of the bat or the club. Um, and I didn't think, and the speeds weren't very high as well. We found them to be higher when guys were hitting something. I don't know why. And again, it's not like super scientific, but just from observing it, we figured um, we were going to keep, with hitting an object and perhaps in the future we'll change our mind on that. But I liked how the guys were moving and, and the results from training with uh, striking something. What is a typical bat speed for um, let's say a high level college player or professional player uh, hitter and how much is it how much is normal to gain for somebody who's already say reasonably well trained? I was going to ask about rec- recreational players, but you don't really have many 
adult baseball recreational players who are trying to increase their bat speed like you do in golf i don't think do you no no not at all i mean we might get one or two a year that are just like hey i want to hit more homers in my uh, slow pitch there's there's hundreds of thousands of of uh middle-aged recreational golfers trying to increase their swing speed so it's a little bit different but what what is a like what is a bat speed i've i've no idea what a bat speed is in high level baseball and how much you see it budge with with a training program. Yeah, yeah. So it, it depends how you measure it. So that's the thing that's tricky about baseball. It's such a random skill that uh, you get a lot of different measurements depending on who you talk to when it comes to bat speed. Um, so basically, typically you'll measure, the first question is where on the bat are you measuring, right? So mm-hmm. some uh, some technologies will measure from the end of the bat, the cap, some will measure from the sweet spot, which is which is what we do, which is more common, which is about six inches from the end of the bat. The second question is, when in the swing do you measure? Um, we always measure at impact. Um, it gets tricky because a lot of swings don't have impact, right? And then you mm-hmm. also have a lot of ugly swings where guys, you know, maybe they're really late and they catch it early in their in their their downswing in what they call in golf downswing. Um, or they just foul tip it or they they have to like, you know, it's a it's a it's a nasty breaking curveball and they thought it was a fastball. So they, they they kind of bend over and just flick it. You know what I mean? So like all that bat speed data goes into um, their average yeah. bat speed. So what we'll look at is, is top end bat speed. So just looking at usually the top eighth. So which is like 12.5 percent, you know, the top eighth highest bat speeds and highest uh, exit velocities, we'll look at the speeds of that to kind of get a good idea of what a hitter looks, um, how hard a hitter can swing the bat, how fast a hitter can swing the bat. Um, upper 70s is, is a really is a really good swing for a professional hitter. The best in the world, like your, your Aaron Judge types, will get up close to 90, if not 90. Otani will, will get up to 90 miles an hour, which is just insanity. Um, your typical like amateur high school, maybe like lower level college player will swing in the high sixties, maybe touch low seventies occasionally. Um, is that different bats? Sorry to interrupt. Like, is there a, is there a bat element there between high school, college and professional? Yeah. Great like question. There is. So in college with, with a few exceptions, they'll use a metal bat and it'll be a little lighter. So there'll be a three inch or there'll, there'll be uh what they call drop three. So the, a difference in three between the length and the weight. So if it's a 34 inch bat, they'll, they'll swing a 31 ounce bat. That's what, that's what a metal bat is where wood bats, you have more variance there based on the, on the player's preference, but typically you'll have like a minus two or even a minus one. Um, So a lot of times when guys switch from metal to wood, they, they, they lose some speed. Yeah. Oh yeah. So the the second part of your question. So as far as how much to gain it, it, it's pretty um, dependent on, on the player, obviously. And we have some guys that pop, you know, that gain three, four miles an hour in an off season. What's more typical is, is to gain between like 0.8 to, you know, 1.1 miles an hour bat speed. That'd be a really good off season for a player. Um, and again, it depends on like their age, training age. Um, you know, o- older players, like I work with a lot of guys and they're, old in baseball terms you know 24 25 they really have to to fight and, and work hard to not only gain bat speed but maintain it as they kind of get towards that like 27 28 
um, age when the bat speeds start to start to age in the wrong direction. Um, is that when you start to see it in professional baseball, like late twenties? Late twenties, yeah, twenty seven, twenty eight is typically when bat speed starts to drop. Hmm. That's interesting. Like you can in golf, I think it's it's a tough one to weigh up because obviously baseball players exhaust their physical capabilities much closer to their genetic ceiling than I think golfers do because there's basically loads of ways to be good at golf. There, there's not a lot of ways to be good at hitting the baseball. I, I think uh, from, from, from what you're telling me, like if you're not fast, you just don't have a hope basically yeah. in the, in the pro levels. But yeah, like we're seeing golfers in their, in their thirties and forties, like professional golfers definitely gaining speed. And even some of the long drive guys, I think they're, not going to have a problem into their thirties. It's interesting that with baseball, I guess it's like what you see in, in the speed or power sports and track and field, like sprinters and jumpers. I don't think you see many of them uh, in older age, except for maybe a a few rare, rare exceptions. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause my my next question was going to be, is, is it hard to make improvements with guys you have, multiple off seasons in a row, but it's, it sounds like that is, it is the case. It is for sure. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll have a, you know, we call it training phases as well. Like in phase one, phase two with, with our hitters, like guys that come in for the first time, they've never trained this way. They've never swung at high intent. They never got bat speed feedback, never used overload, underload training. Um, it's not uncommon t- for them to, to really increase quickly. Right. Uh, but then, the improvements start, start to slow down, you know, once they kind of hit that initial pop. And I think a lot of that's like technique and intent based, but once they kind of get there, they, the improvements really become incremental, largely in the weight room. I think, um, you know, there's, there's kind of peaks and valleys like everything, uh, but it becomes pretty hard to, to improve, um, you know, in year two, year three of this, this sort of training. How much of a focus with those guys is solely put on increasing mass? A lot. Yeah, a lot. Unless they already are really strong. Um, How? So obviously we all want more muscle mass. Uh, Anybody who has tried to gain muscle mass, if they've already been training for a while, knows how hard it is. And it tends to be accompanied by a lot of fat mass. But for your guys, I'm guessing that some gains in fat, as long as it's, um, I guess, contributing to increased strength overall, is probably okay for for guys whose main job is sw- is swinging a bat faster. Yeah, yeah. It depends on the position of the player. I think also um, different positions require different amounts of speed and agility right so yeah the hitters also have to play defense so like a shortstop for instance you know he might put on a, l- a little bad weight and lose a step and that's huge like that, that's absolutely critical yeah, yeah. To, to their position whereas someone at say first base uh maybe even third base left field uh catcher like they, they kind of can live with a little bit extra extra weight and that's definitely a, a trade-off worth making for a lot of them yeah, you forget that they actually have other jobs. They're not just standing there <laughs> yeah. and hitting like a like a thrower and like a thrower in track and field. They also have to go chase chase the ball. Yeah. Um 
No, I, th- I think it's interesting. Like my first time in major league spring training, I was blown away at how large these people are because the baseball uniform is not very flattering. And uh, being a driveline too, um, nowadays where you have so many major league hitters and pitchers come in, you don't realize just how big and how strong these guys are. And it's actually something I talk to minor leaguers about a lot. Like we'll have kids that are 19, you know, and they, and, and they get folded by 225 on the bench and they're, they're weigh 185 pounds and they don't understand why they're not good. It's like, all right, I'll intentionally send them over to major league camp. Just like go walk around in the clubhouse or go to the, the weight room. Like, let's just, I'll, I'll, I'll walk with you and let's just go look at what these guys look like. And um, you'd be surprised at how strong these guys are. I mean, their shoulders, their arms, their back, their legs, and butt, like all of it. They're just, they're absolute units. And you can't really tell uh, from watching a baseball game until you see them in the cage, you know, with, with the sleeveless on. You're like, oh my God, these guys are actually incredibly strong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. That's something I often weigh up to in like physical training for golf is that, like you you read all this different research and talk to people about the importance of the central nervous system and rate of force development and speed, you know, training at very high velocities, which 100% is very important. But then when you, you look at baseball players and you look at like long drive guys and you're like, okay, so these guys are definitely training at high velocities because they're hitting hundreds of baseballs a week. They're smashing hundreds of golf balls a week but they're also monsters. Like they're, they're enormous. And then you're starting to think is like, well, should most of my training be based on getting as big and as strong as possible, which is, you know, massively different to focusing on jumping and throwing med balls and moving lightweights quickly and getting that balance right. And knowing how much is going to have a bigger contribution is really, really challenging, especially, once you're past the the initial gains. Like I think any golfer who's ever been trained has gained five to seven miles an hour in the first eight weeks they do it. And then after that, it's like really slow, yeah. you know, may, maybe none. And it's, it's just, it's so interesting to try and weigh up where our, where our training time should be spent. Yeah. That's, that's the million dollar question. And I have a question for you, actually. I mean, the understanding that strength is critical in baseball, I think is relatively new. Um, you know, I think, I think that it wasn't too long ago where, where people in baseball thought that lifting weights would get you hurt or that pitchers, you know, even today, some people think pitchers shouldn't press or they do anything overhead or they shouldn't lift. They just do long distance and they stay lean. Um, that's no longer the case in the baseball industry. And you've seen that in pro ball and you've seen that in college game too. Like when we, when we draft these guys from colleges, like they're huge. They've been lifting weights at a high level um, for years. Um, and I, and that wasn't the case that long ago. And, and honestly, I, the other day, not the other day, but at some point last year, I remember watching a college golf tournament that was on TV. And my first thought was like, these guys are all incredibly skinny. You know, um, so I wonder if, if that's something you think is going to change in the golf industry. I mean, do you think there's going to be a, a bigger emphasis on strength training in golf at the amateur level? Um, well, I guess question one is, do you think that is important? And two, do you think there's going to be a change um, at the college level and, and the pro level? So I think there already has been a change. Like 
compared to five or 10 years ago. Um, like I've never, I've never worked in a college setting, but know some college coaches and some college players. And I would say if you compared to maybe five and 10 years ago, there's definitely a bigger emphasis on the physical training side of golf development at the moment. Um, Clubhead speeds aren't recorded in college golf tournaments, so I don't have data from them. But obviously, with social media now, you can kind of get an idea of what a lot of the players are are at, and you can talk to coaches. I'm relatively confident in saying that the speeds of college players is going up, especially the very good ones. Um, and I, I think that it's filtering into the pro game as well. Uh it's interesting in golf, like it's it's different to some of the other sports where it's solely based on outputs. Like if you're a you know a fastball pitcher in baseball, your skill, in my understanding, is essentially how fast you can throw the ball. I know they throw some different types of pitches and yeah. stuff, but like it's essentially it's like, well, you can throw a hundred, that guy can throw ninety-one. I'm I'm picking you. Like you're <laughs> yeah. you're getting the contract. You'd be you a know? good scout. Yeah. Whereas in golf Exactly. Whereas in golf, even at higher levels, it's completely possible for somebody with a 113 club head speed to be a better golfer than someone with a 123 club head speed. Like that's entirely possible. But what I think is going to start happening is that as time goes on, there's just going to be so many good players that have exceptional speed. It's going to start to basically push out the exceptionally skilled players that are way lower speed. Not that there won't be any of them, but I think there'll just be less. Yeah. And there'll be rather than the like, oh my God, like that guy is a bomber. There's just going to be loads of bombers that are also exceptionally good at everything else in golf. Um, I think some of that is because and I think there's a few things like is the physical training element, in my opinion, is is arguably the smallest piece. I think the Bigger, the bigger parts are that like uh, Mark Brody's strokes gained mm-hmm. analytics essentially allowed us quantify the value of, of distance, which is essentially down to speed. And because of that, you have kids now growing up and even without, say, strength training, they have lo- like, and also launch monitors, like people can get club head speed numbers really quickly, really cheaply, which wasn't the case 10 years ago. Yeah. You have kids trying to make their club head speed go as high as they can from the time they're kids, like all the way through school and college, which makes a massive, massive difference. So I think, I think, and then because now golf is also cooler, there's way more money. Yeah. You have better, <laughs> better athletes coming in. Like that's, that's one of the big ones. Like, is that you have better athletes coming into golf that before may have chosen baseball or basketball or football uh, because golf is now cooler and there's more money in it. It's such a good career you have the analytics that shows the value of speed. So coaches are emphasizing it. Players are emphasizing it. Um, and then, yeah, there, there is also the physical training side of it. But it's funny, like as a physical trainer, I'd probably say that that's nearly lowest on the list in terms of why speed is going up so much. Because I still don't really see any of, let's say, like the fast swingers on the PGA Tour being like, absolute physical specimens in terms of power and strength yeah. compared to compared to other sports. Like if you think of throwers in track and field um, yep. or even baseball, hitters and pitchers, 
or how strong and explosive hockey players are. We still don't really have that in golf, I don't think. Uh, but we still do have players who are like, you know, a lot of players who are in the 180s, some in the 190s ball speed. So if you start to get like really, really explosive athletes, more 190s and coming closer to 200s may become more common would be would be my thinking there, you know. And if there's enough of them, there'll be enough of them that are really good. And that will make it very hard for the shorter players. There'll still be some of them, like they're, they're 100%. Yeah. Uh, because it's all about that but i think that's the way it is going and that's why so many of the current players are are working on trying to bump it up no that makes perfect sense and the parallels to baseball are are unbelievable i mean pitching is ahead of hitting in these areas and i think largely because radar guns have have uh, been used in baseball for quite a while now so kind of to your point pitchers know what it looks like at the highest level and yeah there are guys that only throw 89 90 in the big leagues but they're the exception not the rule right and Mm -hmm. they do so because they have maybe like a really deceptive delivery or they're left-handed or they have a bunch of spin on a breaking ball and like you know those things are just incredibly difficult to uh to survive with and what that's done is like it's shown the amateur, what it takes, what it looks like. And then they also have access to the, to that data themselves in training. And that's changed the game and it's changed the strategy of the game as well to where people realize like, okay, there's a direct correlation to like velocity and the quality of the pitch. Obviously you still need to throw it in the strike zone, but that matters a lot. Um, And that's what they're paying for. That's what they're drafting. And that's sort of created this system to where like everyone is now doing velocity training and driveline. It's kind of been at the forefront of that. And and hitting is behind. We're slowly getting there. Very recently, like when the last few years, people started posting or like on TV broadcasts, they started posting exit velocities of batted balls. Mm. And then launch monitor technology is, is common now when it wasn't even three, four years ago um, to where kids know how hard to hit the ball. So they can watch TV and say like, Wow, you know, uh, Pete Alonso hit a home run 116 miles an hour, right? That was his ball speed. I've never hit a ball over 100, right? That's so it, yeah. it becomes really obvious. Uh, and we're just getting there in the hitting world. Uh, you'd be surprised how many battles I fight with coaches, uh, prominent coaches, on on the importance of speed. Um, so it's like kind of the end of the beginning right now, which is really interesting, and it's it's kind of cool to see that happening in golf, where. Um, you know, I always say the pressure comes from underneath with the amateurs kind of getting in the pro ball, um, having trained this way, having understood what matters, um, them changing the organization from underneath. It's been kind of interesting to observe, but it seems that's going to be what's happening in golf as well. I I, I think it's trending that way. Like I, I definitely won't say there will be no place for someone, you know, who's who's not super fast because there is still such a large skill element to golf. It will just it will just get more difficult, and there there'll be plenty of super fast guys who who aren't very good because they don't have the other skills. It's just when there's when there's enough of them, like it's going to be very hard for a short guy to beat all of them. Like if you've got fifty bombers in a field, it's going to be really hard. Like some of them are going to play well, and if they do it's really hard for the shorter guys to make up for what they're lacking in length. Yeah. There's only one or two long guys in the field. 
and they have bad days, like sure, the, sh- the shorter guys have a good chance. But when you just start getting droves of them, it's like, well, like kind of like Cameron Champ is is a good example. Yeah. Like Cameron Champ is is a very interesting career. Uh, I think he's played roughly, when I checked, I think he played roughly 100 PGA Tour events. His like made cut percentage wasn't very good at all, but he had three wins, which is like more than a career's worth for some people yeah. because because he's so outrageously long. <laughs> right. When he's when he's on form, it's like it's there's a really good chance he's going to be up near the top of the leaderboard. Yeah. So kind of what I'm saying is that like Cam Champ averages like 190 ball speed, which guys are doing in college. Wow. If you start getting, if you start getting. 20 or 40 cam champ lengths length of players in a field it's like i'm not saying that markawa or you know uh, let's say harris english or you know someone who's a bit more average speed i'm not saying that they can't win it just makes it really hard if five of those cam champs are having really good weeks you know because because they're starting with a bigger advantage basically like totally Speed shows up on every tee box and every week, but yeah, that will that will kind of wait wait to be seen. Um, one more question I had that uh, I thought was was worth touching on, um, kind of the the training process that we talked about for the baseball hitters was, from what my understanding, primarily based on what they're doing in their off season yeah. in terms of how much, let's say, speed they gain. But I also know that the baseball season is exceptionally long and exceptionally demanding in terms of travel and energy expenditure. And yeah. I've heard stories of, you know, weight loss and velocity loss and stuff like that. Um, how do you, I guess, try and help players in season? What what changes and, and what do they need to try and make sure they stay on top of to keep their velocity up? I'm sure that velocity going down is is the problem. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. And I, I think that's more true of pitching than hitting. Uh, but we do see guys that that lose bat speed throughout the course of the season, a slight amount. It's actually not uncommon for a hitter to to use a lighter bat kind of in the last half or third of their season for that reason. Just as they get fatigue, uh, like you said, they, they lose weight. Um, a lot of these leagues um, in the minor leagues are in really hot areas, like being Florida, you know, playing day games and it's super – sweaty and and it's just hard it's hard to maintain body mass and strength um but it can be done right i think that that's step one is like telling guys that our season especially as a minor leaguer is is we're, we're training we're still training we want you to perform in the game but the goal is to train to get to the big leagues um so first and foremost we're going to build up your workload in the off season so that when it does come time to, to play uh, and be in your season, like we still going to have dedicated training time during the day where we're going to do bat speed training a couple of times a week. We're going to take, you know, a, a high volume number of swings uh, with high, high intent and with focus, deliberate practice uh, during the day, as opposed to more traditional baseball, which would be just kind of roll the balls out and, you know, show up, take your batting practice before the game, which is like 25, 30 swings, maybe some t- hit some balls off a tee and then go and play. Um, I know it for a fact because I've seen it with players. You can get better during the season. You can get stronger during the season. You can gain bat speed during the season. 
but it takes a lot of commitment. It takes, it takes, um, a focus on training and, and, you know, the little things like your diet, your sleep, um, you know, the decisions you make like off the field. I mean, so many things go into it, but, uh, I, I think step one is just letting the players know, like, that's the expectation and and that can be done. It, it has been done it and it will be done with you guys. And, um, that that's been a way to, to kind of gain some ground on the competition is, is by having guys actually get better during the season. Yeah, probably like very realistic too for the guys who are earlier in their career and haven't got as close to their potential as maybe, you know, uh, mid-20s or late-20s superstar who's had three years of, you know, major league and driveline off-season training, say. But they're the guys who will see gains in season. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think a lot of organizations are are leaning that way, especially at the lower levels. So like when you have your complex in the Dominican Republic or your complex in Florida or Arizona, you're going to have a lot of kids that are 17 to 19 years old. And uh, historically they just play too many games. Like they, they play every day. Um, and a lot of their training economy goes towards playing. And like, trust me, they need to learn baseball. They need to learn how to, you know, develop some instincts, learn the game itself. It's a very technical game, especially on defense and, and a lot of the things like that. Um, but more organizations are kind of taking time to do skill training to get in the weight room more um work on speed you know things like that and and it makes sense you know kind of more of like a academy style uh training with some of those younger guys and i think it's reaping some benefits for sure yeah perfect just just two more um i'm not sure exactly how much you know about golf or how big into golf you are but have you thought about any similarities and differences in regards to training the golfer and baseball hitter for more speed? Yeah, I love golf. I'm uh, not very good, but I, I do love golf. Um, and I have thought about it. I have done some homework on it. I mean, the, the big difference, obviously, is the nature of the skill, right? One being reactive um, and, and much more chaotic, I guess. Like when you look at the kinematics of a hitter throughout even a game, but like a, a season, you're going to see a very wide range of of movement sort of kinematics, like things from posture to stride length, uh, elbow extension at contact, uh, side bend. I mean, it's it's a very chaotic skill, um, and it happens under an extreme time constraint, right? Like I think a 95 mile hour fastball goes from the pitcher's hand to the to the hitting zone in, in like about 135 milliseconds, which is about how long it takes to blink, right? So uh, the reason I bring that up is like when I see golf speed training, I know a lot of it is done through added length. And maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like increasing the length of the backswing, increasing the turn of the torso. Uh, and in baseball, it's like time is so precious, right? So like, increasing speed within the constraint of the of the swing we have and like and not doing it at the expense of of precision and quickness is that's kind of balancing act we have to play um and we'll see like in comparison like i, I don't know the details on golf but you, you probably do but like looking at something like x factor i think you guys call it or hip shoulder separation our average for our big league hitters is like 20 something 22 degrees i believe pitchers are way more than that but um we can't have guys increase speed by adding a bunch of like torso turn, a bunch of extra separation, mm -hmm. because we're going to see kind of a, that precision, that quickness uh, fall off a cliff and they're going to be a worse hitter. So to me, that's the, the first 
obvious difference in the speed training between the two skills. Yeah, and they, they just simply don't have time. Like in, in golf, it's up to us how long in terms of time we take to swing. And obviously extra time gives us more hand path length, bigger turn, like you touched on. You try that in baseball and the ball has gone past you. Do you know, like roughly in terms of time frame, how long between when a baseball hitter initiates their swing and when impact would be? Yeah, yeah. So um, I misspoke earlier. The, the pitch will be about 400 milliseconds. A swing is about 140 milliseconds from the beginning. Okay, of, well, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, no. Keep, keep going. Yeah, so uh, those bat sensors will measure that. They call it time to impact. It's one of the metrics that they'll, they have a lot of metrics, but that's one of the ones that we look at. Attack angle is another one that's, I believe, stolen straight from golf, which is the vertical angle of the bat through contact. Um, perhaps a different discussion, but about 135, 140 milliseconds is uh, is the, the the time to impact. So, And that starts measuring when the bat begins turning, begins rotating towards contact, and it goes okay. to contact. So that, that's about... So that eliminate that eliminates their wind up or backswing phase. Correct. Do you know how long it is in total if you added in that that element? The backswing? Um, no, I don't. It, it varies so much by hitter. I mean, you, we have so many different styles in, in hitting. A lot, yep. lot of guys will barrel tip. Some will kind of lay it flat. Others have a very simple move. Some will preset into their launch position. I mean, everything. Guys will toe tap with their with their leg uh, in the, what we call the stride phase. Um, there's a lot of variation in the backswing to like forward swing ratio. Yeah. Cause like for people listening who aren't, you know, maybe as, as into training, like there's, there's two big things that will have very important training implications for getting faster. One is time to produce force. So the longer time you have to produce force, the more valuable muscle mass and strength is. And the other one would be is that the heavier the implement, the more valuable strength and muscle mass would be. If the implement is either very light or there's very little time to produce and apply force, that's when maximal strength and muscle mass may not be as important. And you're really going to be looking at the people who have unbelievably highly functioning nervous systems and can ramp up the rate of force development very quickly. So yeah, it's, it's interesting comparing them. I was just talking to a golf biomechanics, biomechanics, um, researcher PhD, um, from super speed called Tyler Standiford yesterday. And basically what he told me is that from what he's looking at in his lab, the time that golfers have from when the downswing starts to produce force in a time frame that's appropriate to apply it to the club is about 0.17 to 0.2 seconds. Oh, interesting. And you're saying about 0.13 to 0.14 in baseball. But in golf, like that, that time to produce force, not that it's a little misleading, but we get a lot of help from the amount of time we've had in our windup and the stretch shortening cycle, the basically like stored energy in our tendons and muscles from the stretch phase. It would be very different if we were starting from the top of the backswing and we only had 
0.2 seconds from there. So I still don't actually know, like, <laughs> say, yeah. and that's why I, I have these conversations and ask all these questions. I still don't know what exactly that means for training implications. Um, I, I think getting really strong and trying to get really fast is probably the best way to go. But how heavy is a baseball bat? Because that, that would have some some changes on what's important too. Yeah, usually around, uh, depends on the age, but but for an adult, like 30 to 32 ounces, it's about average. Okay. And uh, Do you know how many grams that is? I don't. Sorry, I'm a stupid American. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I know in golf, it's like you have all that time to load your joints, you know, in that backswing where you can like load your lead yeah. shoulder and your, you can coil your about pelvis nine, and torso. Right, about 900 grams. There you go. So about three times the weight of a driver, I think. Sounds about right. Um, but yeah, baseball, you you have to get really close to to sort of your launch position, we call it, right? Which would probably be like transition or, or downswing. Um, you kind of have to get close to those, you know, those positions in your lead shoulder and in your in your hip shoulder relationship, pelvis torso relationship, and and your wrist and all those things, like because you really have to go at an instant and. Uh, it's just different. You don't have the time to kind of like slowly load those joints in sequence and, and unload them. You kind of have to get closer there. And also from a postural perspective, like you have to kind of get into that position where it's like, all right, we're, we're, we're ready to launch at any point. And we also have to be able to not swing, which I think is unique to baseball. Uh, and you have to be able to enter different lanes, right? Hand path or bat, or bat path from the same spot in, in an incredible amount of time. Um, so it really is a miraculous skill. Like I, I'll sit there sometimes and I'll watch guys hit off a machine or watch them hit off 97, 98 mile hour fastballs and think like, how can a human do this? You know, it's just a completely yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. That's usually my vote for hardest skill in sports. You know, when people ask that question, I've never tried it, but just thinking of the physics, I think it's, it's unbelievable. Um, I thought of one more question and then, then I, I will leave, leave you go. Um, or one, one extra question. I still have two left. You touched on Aaron Judge and Shohei Otani. Uh, are they similar in bat speeds? Yeah, they're similar. I think Judge has them beat by uh, maybe a half mile an hour. I don't know. Off the they're, top of my they're quite different in physical size and shape, though. Is that correct? Like, Otani's not a huge guy, and Judge is. Is that correct? Well, he's bigger than you think. Uh, I'll look it up right now. I, th- I, I think he's like six four six five oh i i didn't know that yeah, yeah that again makes... case in point on the baseball uniform yeah 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 uh he is a unit for sure i've i've seen him in person he uh absolutely act um he i mean i'll, I'll just go ahead and say he came to the driveline he did a lot of our testing and kind of just six four two two ten uh according to oh, google well, yeah, yeah that... That's it. Like from from just seeing clips of him on highlights and stuff, I was like, I don't think he's that big. Yeah, obviously. exactly. Yeah, no, but he, um, yeah, he he's massive and uh, incredibly powerful. But Judge, I mean, Judge, I think it's six seven, two two sixty five, two seventy. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly, but but yeah, he and, he's absolutely. Sorry, massive. go ahead. No, that's it. With those. With Otani, could you? I don't know if you're if you're allowed to say, but could you see the differences in the testing that he went through with Driveline in terms of the five tests you talked about, the and 
the bat speed could you see the relationship like oh yeah like of course this guy has a crazy high bat speed look at his testing numbers yeah well, it's, it's funny you say that because when he uh did all our testing we get that predicted bat speed and he was oh, actually, yeah. he was actually below it by a pretty significant margin was like okay well this is by far the highest predicted predicted bat speed we've ever seen <laughs> and he's below it it was just kind of odd and we thought like okay maybe he just broke the model just because he's such an outlier but um you know after training this way and doing it for an off season um he did get better and he got closer uh, and up to that predicted mm-hmm. bat speed and ended up uh making huge jumps and having a, a really really good season offensively after that but uh but yeah he 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 kind of just you know everyone was blown away at the numbers that he was putting up and, and doing it very casually as well. He's just, uh, he's a yeah. different animal, man. It's unbelievable. It's very intrusive and mightn't make any difference to like how you actually assess and train someone. But if you ever looked into like muscle biopsy stuff to see fiber type proportions or looked at genetic testing or anything like that? No, I haven't. I, I'm super interested in that. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think in baseball, I mean, that you probably see just such a high percentage of fast twitch fiber with, with the people yeah. that do it at a high level, obviously, but I'd be curious to see uh, what that would look like. I mean, maybe there's some research on it of professional baseball players. I haven't seen it if it exists. Yeah. I, I don't know. I haven't looked into it on baseball players. I, I think Dr. Andy Galpin, I don't know if you're popular with him, like mm-hmm. are familiar with him. He does lots of biopsy research on high level athletes and he's worked with a lot of, or in conjunction with a lot of different organizations. I think he probably has some stuff, but I would be like willing to bet that those guys who are separated, like one of the things is perhaps a very high uh, fast switch fiber proportion, which is, you know, that that is shown in the research to be really important for rate of force development. Um, not not quite as important for maximal strength, like with, with power lifters who are grinding out one rep maxes and things like that. Muscle mass, so it can be like, Type 2A, we've, we've two types of fast switch fibers, type 2A and type 2X. Type 2X are the really, really fast ones. We tend to not have many of those, and they tend to get converted to type 2A when oh. training quite easily. And then type 1 are the slow twitch. But one of the, and someone might correct me on this, but like one of the differentiations between super strong guys in like one rep maxes, like powerlifters, they can do that just with having huge size type 2a muscle fibers but you can't be super fast relying on those so i think for people who have exceptionally good rate of force development like otani would or are like sprinters or or throwers uh, baseball pitchers or batters you uh you would probably need some type 2x to be at that read or a lot of type 2x to be at that really high elite level yeah makes sense last question any stories of how fast professional baseball players can swing a golf club like have you ever seen otani or otani with a driver on a track man or anything i haven't i would love to see it um yeah i'll tell you baseball players love golf especially pitchers i go out with them all the time and i'm, I'm frequently uh blown away at how how far they hit the golf ball uh without ever training it <laughs> also i mean crazy stories like one comes to mind i mean at the end of spring training we always did a uh a tournament like a little scramble tournament and everyone would go all the players and the staff would mix up and i got paired with a guy named Derek hall Derek hall's a player for the phillies he's a big power hitter for them good friend of mine he's he's the man and he's barely played any golf and uh 
this guy was hitting balls like I've never seen or heard in my life. I mean, at one point, I think he out he drove it over a green that was like 370 yards away. <laughs> uh, maybe the wind aided a little bit. Um, you know, two thirds of his drives were, were never to be found. You know, still MIA, but uh, he he was uh, you know grabbing it like a baseball bat and just didn't, didn't even know what he was doing. He's kind of a mongoloid anyway, and he's just absolutely crushing these balls and uh he wasn't the only one i mean all these guys that had never played golf uh were just piping 350 360 yard drives and all over the place i mean this poor golf co- golf course was a war zone <laughs> out there but uh anyway so eventually um i always told derek i'm like dude when i'm in town like we need to get out to the range i have a little rapsodo monitor that they gave me at one point right? we have a good relationship with that company and i'm like just come out one day and just take some swings do me a solid and finally one day he 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 in town uh he pops over kind of does a couple trunk twists grabs the driver and in his first swing i think it was like 123 club speed uh and after a few warm-ups he was getting in the like low 130s i think he had a couple 200 mile an hour ball speeds carrying balls 360 plus i mean yeah it was incredible um and, and it was like just a walk in the park for him and and again like I've played with, with all no technique, guys. no, no golf coaching, no golf coach. I mean, he's taking a step with his front leg, uh, <laughs> you know, falling over after he swings um, again, like half the balls are like going 350 yards, right. Uh, swing and missing on a couple or whatever. But like when he got them just absolutely insane. I mean, these, these guys are just some of the best rotators in the world. And uh, a lot of them, like when they retire, just go in the golf and just immediately get into single digit handicap simply because they, they could swing at that speed. Yeah, there's a lot of really good ones live live around here. I've heard of a few of them. Pujols, I think, is one of He yeah, he lives nearby here. He's a pretty good player, I think. Is he? I believe it. Um, yeah, Otani actually lives in this area. So if you want to set him up coming to the range, and I'll get some clips of him hitting driver and measured his speeds, I'd be I'd be more than happy to <laughs> uh, to accommodate that if if you can send him a text. Yeah, he probably won't reply to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep you posted. Don't hold your breath. Yeah. <laughs> Jason, that's excellent. I really appreciate the info and I hope people enjoyed the, the discussion we had. Thanks a lot. You bet. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. I forgot to ask Jason where we could find out more or follow him. So if you would like to follow Jason on social media, his Twitter handle is at Jason Ochart, O-C-H-A-R-T. If you enjoyed this podcast, leaving a rating and review in the App Store is really helpful. And please let me know if you have any feedback or questions.